Okay, you can be opening up to the book of Ruth. We're studying the book of Ruth. Uh, today we're going to be looking at chapter 3. And then we'll have one more lesson in Ruth next week. We'll look at chapter 4. And then I think we're going to start a study of the book of Galatians. So I think that'll be a good study. It, go, it'll, it will go on for a while. We'll probably go at least two quarters in Galatians. So uh, I know we just got out of Ephesians and we did Colossians for that. And now we're going to do Galatians. I think you're going to see a lot of similarities in all these letters because Paul was dealing with similar issues in all of them, right? So uh, hopefully you'll be looking forward to that study. Um, the summertime, I know, can be kind of, you know, messed up because people are traveling and, uh, you know, you're not always here every Sunday and so forth. But I think it'll be a good study. And like I said, it'll go over a couple quarters. So we'll have plenty of time to look at, look at the letter, the letter to the church in uh, Galatia. All right. Well, as we uh, have been studying the book of Ruth, you know, we, uh, we've studied in chapter one, we looked at uh, Ruth and her uh, willingness to be a servant to her mother-in-law, her in-laws. Uh, we talked about how she was willing to go, right? Uh, a Moabite woman, not an Israelite, who uh, was married into an Israelite family. Uh, Limelech was the father, and of course, the two sons, and then her mother-in-law, Naomi. And of course, we talked about how that family had left Israel during a famine time to find greener pastures, perhaps, in Moab, right? And how that was probably a it's not, it's not directly stated, but perhaps that was a uh, desire, you know, desire, obviously a human desire to, to have sustenance, but not so much a faithful desire, right? Perhaps they were not trusting in God to provide like they should have, and they went into Moab. And, of course, Elimelech dies. The sons take on Moabite wives, and then they die. And then you have Naomi as a widow. The daughters are widows. And then Naomi decides, well, I'm going to go back to the homeland. You know, I'm going to go back to the homeland, uh, to my people, and you girls need to go back to your own mom and dad and here in Moab. And, of course, they love her. They love, they've come to love Naomi because of, of, of her love for them. And Orpah, the one daughter, decides to go back, but Ruth says, no, I'm sticking with you. I'm going with you. In other words, she's now becoming a proselyte to Judaism. She's becoming a, quote, Israelite, even though she's a Moabite woman. And she travels back to Israel, to the town of Bethlehem, actually, with Ruth. And at the end of chapter 1, we find out this is the time of the harvest of barley, or the barley harvest, right? And the famine is kind of over, and now there's food available in the nation of Israel. Well, for whatever reason, whether uh, the Israelites were being judged, we, we read about how during the time before the kings, the Israelites were constantly in and out of God's grace, you might say, right? They would be faithful for a while, and then they'd fall away. And then God would bring judgment on them, and they would be oppressed for a while. Perhaps at one time we read about King Eglon of, of Moab, actually oppressed the Israelites for 18 years. And then he'd have to raise up a judge to, uh, to, to lead, them, lead, them back to, uh, lead them back to their uh, liberty and God's graces. So we have this going on. Perhaps that's why they're coming back, that God is now providing a great harvest for them. And we read about Ruth's uh, noble choice to stay with her mother-in-law, to go back to Israel with her. And then we also read last week in chapter 2 about, well, we're the, uh, last week about her willingness to 
help her mother out, right? Help her mother-in-law out to glean her lowly service, right? To glean in the fields to provide sustenance for her and her mother-in-law. Her, both, both widows, both having the right to go into the fields as we read about the law where those who had fields were to leave the corners of the fields uh, alone so those who were fatherless or widows could come into the fields and glean for their own sustenance, right? That's the way that God provided for those who had that need. And so she did that and she ends up gleaning in the field of Boaz. Boaz, a very wealthy man, and we found out last week who was actually a relative of Naomi, right? And therefore a relative of Ruth through marriage, right? So Ruth happened to be gleaning in the field of Boaz, and we find out that Boaz happens to notice her. And he inquires of the workers that he has in the field. Who is this strange woman? Who is this person? And of course they tell her, well, tell him that she's a Moabite woman, but she has great virtue, she's a great worker, and he takes an interest in her and has her come to the table with the workers and feeds her and tells the men not to touch her, not to mess with her, and allows her to work following other workers, allows her to glean following other workers, even to the point where he tells his workers to be a little clumsy out there, let some more grain fall for her, right? A little, little extra grain fall on the ground so she can get that. And she ends up going back to Naomi at the end of chapter 2 there, right? with a ephah of barley, which we said was around eh, 30 to 50 pounds. And remember in the first chapter, Naomi is saying, I am going back to Israel because God has dealt bitterly with me. My husband has died, my sons have died, and that's when she's telling Ruth and Orpah that don't go back with me, I can't provide for you. I can't provide a husband for you, I'm too old. I can't get a husband for you. You need to go back to your families. And that was when Ruth made that choice to come with her. And so now Naomi sees what Ruth has gleaned, and she's saying now she's rejoicing. God is, God is uh, showing favor. He's, I'm rejoicing. She's very glad of what's happening here. And she realizes, perhaps Ruth doesn't, that she's gleaning in the field of Boaz, who Naomi knows is a relative. And that's going to play an important role in what we're going to read today, right? So we have Ruth gleaning in the field of Boaz, bringing home some food for her and Naomi. And Naomi's thrilled with this. And remember, at the beginning, we read the genealogy of King David, right? And Ruth ends up, telling a little bit about the end of the story before we get there, but Ruth ends up in the genealogy of King David, right? And ultimately, since she is in the genealogy of King David, who else is she in the genealogy of? Jesus Christ. So, a Moabite woman who ends up being an ancestor of the Lord. All right, let's read chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. 
and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And so she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if, that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. And then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six, six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me. For he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. All right. Well, it's, it's getting interesting, isn't it? To say the least. Naomi's now doing something that a lot of moms do, right? Maybe not so much mother-in-laws usually, but, you know, Naomi and Ruth have a motherly and daughterly relationship. She's kind of making a match here, isn't she? Kind of contriving to find Ruth a husband, even though she had told her, remember, in Moab, I can't provide a husband for you. I can't do this. I can't have a son for you. I'm too old. But now she sees an opportunity. She knows Boaz is a relative, and she knows about the Leverate, uh, the Leverate Law, the Law of the Leverate vow, vow, not Vow, Leverate Law, that said a next of kin was to provide for a widow when the brother had died, the husband had died. Naomi's concerned for Bruce's security. We read there in verse 1 talking about her security and well-being, and that in the King James Version, really implies the benefits found in a marriage. Okay, so she's, she's worried that she's not married, that she's still a widow. Here she is still a young woman, and uh, she's very available and could marry again. So in that time, obviously, we know that uh, marriages was usually, were usually arranged. In fact, let's read about that a little bit. Go over to Judges chapter 14. Let's read a few verses there. That's one book back. should be easy to get there. And let's see what Samson did back in his time when he was looking for a wife. Judges 14, verse 1, it says, Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. So I guess you could go to your parents and say, I found this lady here, go get her for me. 
Can you imagine doing that today? Well, I don't know. Maybe some of you did. I don't know. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? I could just hear that conversation. And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. Oh, now we know the rest of the story. For that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. And you know the rest of the story there. The lion comes out. Through God's power, Samson is able to just kill the lion. And then you know the rest of the story. Not going to get into all that. But we see here that that's, way, that's the way marriages were done. They were pretty much arranged at the time. The parents would find a wife for their sons. Or perhaps the mother-in-law would, through a little planning, I don't want to say conniving, that's not a good word for it really, but she figured out a way, hey, I know about that liberate law, and I know about Boaz, and maybe if you go over there and kind of take a bath, put on some good-looking stuff, jewelry or whatever, adorn yourself well, or anoint yourself, it says here, wear your best garment, he might pay a little more attention to you. Now, ladies, I don't know about putting on the best garment or adorning myself, but I can't imagine any of you ever did that just to go out to a threshing floor. Or maybe you did it to the corn patch. Anybody ever get themselves gussied up so they could go see a fella who was working out in the field? Well, maybe, maybe some of you did. I don't know. Nobody ever did that for me, but then I wasn't working out in the field either. But that's what's going on here, right? She's saying, get yourself made up so you can look decent and go get a husband who happens to be working out there on the threshing floor, who she knew would be going on because Boaz had a field of barley. What was a threshing floor? Well, I'm sure some of you farmers know. That's where they would take the barley or the, the wheat and from the field, cut it, put it on the threshing floor, you know, beat it out, beat out the grain from it, from the straw, or some would you might have taken horses and walked across it. I think they had some sticks that back in the old days that they would use to beat it with. And then they would winnow it, right? Throw it up into the air where the straw and the chaff would fly away in the wind. And the grain, the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And that's how they picked the grain from the straw, from the chaff. And we see that example a lot in, in the Bible, right? About how at the end time, how the chaff will be taken away and burned. Interesting how that is always a, a good ex example of good and evil and no judgment time, right? But this is what Boaz is doing. He's going to be at his threshing floor winnowing out the grain, and she knows about it. And then he's going to be tired at the end. He's going to eat and drink, get his fill, I guess, and get kind of sleepy. She knows he's going to sleep out there, right there by the grain. I don't know if they didn't have a, I guess it was too far to walk after that. He got kind of full. I don't know why he didn't go back to the house or the farmhouse, whatever. But anyways, and he tells, she tells her to go out there and uncover his feet and lay at his feet. All right. Now, let's talk about that levirate vow a minute. Turn over to Deuteronomy. Let's just read that. 
what it says about that. <clears throat> Chapter 25. And let's begin in verse 5. It says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. God forbid you ever had that name on your house. The house in Israel that had his sandal removed. But that is very scriptural, is it not? And that's what was supposed to happen. So, I don't, I don't wear sandals, thankfully. But I guess that could be a shoe, too, right? And I don't remember ever anybody having my sandal removed for anything, but I think that still goes on out in the world. I don't know if you remember... A few years ago when Bush was still president and he was at something in the Middle East and some guy got in there and threw his shoe at him. Remember that? And there was something about that's an Islamic thing where if you throw your shoe at somebody, that's like the most disgraceful thing you can do to them or something. So there was something about sandals being removed and feet and shoes being thrown or whatever that was considered bad in the Middle East or whatever. So this is what we have here. We have the liberate vow that says if your brother dies and leaving without a, a heir or a son, without an heir, you as a brother could go in and, and provide a surrogacy, a surrogate husband, I guess you might say, as we know today. And if he has a son, that son would keep the, the uh, dead brother's name, that they might continue that name in Israel. So that's what we're talking about here. This is something that Naomi knows all about, and she's trying to find a way to send Ruth and get, a, and get Boaz as a husband. And as we get to the end of the story, we'll see a little more about what we know about Boaz and how Naomi knew certain things were going to happen because of that. All right, so Ruth is told to wash, anoint herself, and put on a, her best garment. And she's told to wait till Boaz is eaten and falling asleep, and then to sit at her feet, at his feet. All right. Now, some would interpret this, uncovering his feet, Right? Laying at his feet as euphemisms for indecency, immorality, right? Sexual immorality. Some scholars try to say that, all right? Now, we've already read, though, that Ruth is a virtuous woman, right? And by the way, if you read the text, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think that. First of all, Boaz is asleep, and even uncovering his feet doesn't wake him up. Now, if I was laying in my bed and somebody came in there and uncovered my feet, I'd be jumping out of bed immediately, looking for my gun. <laughs> well, maybe not looking for my gun, but at least pretty startled, right? Apparently, he's such a deep... What was that? Yeah, pretty much 
uh, such a deep sleep that it doesn't even wake him up until around midnight. I don't know. He started snoring or something, and he woke himself up, and there was a woman there. And he's going, what is going on? But then he goes on to say, uh, to try to protect her, right? Preserve her uh, virtuosity. Preserve her integrity, right? And you can see that this may not look too good, that this woman's come out here, and if anybody sees it, well, they're going to think the worst, right? Obviously. So many have tried to say that that was an act of immorality. Uh, such an act of boldness perhaps suggested that. But the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't suggest that. In fact, Ruth obeys uh, Naomi's advice here. She consents to follow her advice, um, knowing that perhaps Naomi loves her and knowing that Naomi is perhaps trying to provide for her. Well, in fact, she says that. She says, take your maid under your wing. And I think it's in the NSRV where it actually says, or spread your cloak over your maid. In other words, this was a phrase in that region to say, it really is a proposal of marriage. Take me as your wife, okay? So she is a virtuous woman. She's done what Naomi has asked her to do, and uh, she's asking Boaz to take her and provide the levirate vow that uh, he, he should be providing for her. Of course, Boaz knows about this. He knows that he's a close relative to her. He knows that he could fulfill this levirate vow, right, this levirate law, and perhaps be married to her, but it turns out he's not the closest kinsman to her huh so that's an obstacle he's obviously can't just go and say I'll take you as my wife because he's got to clear it through the other guy all right so he tells her if he does not want you want to take you as your wife then I'll do it I'll take you as my wife right so he's He's also talking about how grateful he is for her kindness to him. And that even makes him more wanting to preserve her virtuosity, preserve her um, integrity, right? So when you read that text, it makes no sense that there would be some kind of indecent thing going on here, immoral thing, right? Boaz responds with gratitude, responds with kindness, and he's concerned about preserving her honor. And so to fulfill her request, he has to allow her, allow this other closer kinsman to um, decide whether he wants to take her as his wife, but he does want to perform that duty if he does not. Also, he says, stay until morning. Why does he do that? Well, he's telling her, I don't want anybody to think badly of you. Therefore, if she left in the middle of the night, I guess someone might see her, right? and think, what is she doing up there in the middle of the night? And so he tells her to stay until the morning and leave when she can, when people can see that she's, it's morning time, it's daytime. And he also instructs his workers who would have been there, right, that may have seen her, and says, do not tell anyone about this. Obviously, keep it quiet. We don't want her reputation to be tarnished by being here. 
And then Boaz gives Ruth six ephahs of barley. Now, I said last week, one ephah is about 30 to 50 pounds. So I would imagine she had some help taking that home. And then he tells her to bring her shawl. So I guess he's going to lay out six ephahs of barley. Well, about, about 300 pounds or so. I don't think there's much chance she's carrying that home by herself. Anyways, right? So she's going to have to, he doesn't say, but she's going to have to have somebody helping her take that back to Naomi. So people are going to know that she's there. What's this gift about? What is he, what is he sending back with Ruth there to Naomi? Well, perhaps it's just a dowry, right? A, a bridal price. Perhaps he's saying, I'm going to take her as my wife. Here's, your da here's the dowry. Here's payment for my bride. Or perhaps it's a message for Naomi recognizing her part in this. Well, Boaz knows Naomi's relative, all right? Boaz knows Naomi was doing some planning. So perhaps that's why he's sending that stuff back. He's excited. He had already noticed Ruth, for whatever reason, her, 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 her beauty perhaps, her willingness to work so hard in the field, her willingness to follow her mother-in-law wherever she went, her willingness to obey the one true God and give up all the gods that she had had in Moab. Perhaps he knows about that. Perhaps it's just a cover for Ruth, should anyone see her, implying that she'd been working in the field all night. And I guess they would do that, right? Some of those widows or strangers or those who were orphans would come in the middle of the night, perhaps under the moonlight, to glean. Perhaps... That's all it was for, to show that she had been working in the field. Or simply a gift from the betrothed. Perhaps it's just a gift from a fiancé to her, his fiancé in hopes to be married. Well, what happens? Ruth reports to Naomi. Ruth tells all that Boaz has done for her, and she explains about the six ephahs of barley. And what's Naomi say? She doesn't outright say it, but she knows who Boaz is. She knows about Boaz, and she says, just be patient. He'll take care of it. Just be patient. Give him a little, little time. In fact, he'll have it done by the end of the day. She knows about him. Interesting, right? She knows what Boaz is all about. She's confident that he's going to take care of this immediately so yeah we can characterize Naomi as a matchmaker you know maybe she's a conniver but she has a duty as a parent to take care of her daughter-in-law right a, a, a motherly relationship is going on there she's certainly come up with a plan for her daughter-in-law or daughter to be married to have a husband and she correctly anticipated the way Boaz would respond. It was probably a, you could say, a risky proposition. I mean, if she goes up there in the middle of the night like that and he doesn't like it, he could probably, I don't know, have her put away. I mean, he's a wealthy guy. He's a pretty prominent individual. Everybody knows who Boaz is, right? If he didn't like the situation... He could have had her, I don't know, 
marked, perhaps. But Naomi knew about his Naomi knew about his integrity, his character. And she knew how things were going to turn out. Scholars, as I mentioned, have debated about what, whether something immoral went on there. There is, in your outline, in the conclusion there, there's a good write-up. I'm going to read this. This is from F.B. Huey from the Expositor's Bible. And I'm going to read this because I would imagine if you were discussing Ruth with somebody today that knew anything about Ruth, one of the first things they're going to say, yeah, they're, they're, they're had sexual morality in the Bible. That was going on, you know, in the world. And people in the world would think that. But this is from Huey. He says, those who interpret a sexual relationship in the events reflect their 20th century cultural conditioning. All right? They're looking at it from the viewpoint of the way things are today and the sexual promiscuousness that goes on. They fail to appreciate the element of Ruth's trust that Boaz would not dishonor her whom he wanted for his wife. They failed to appreciate the cultural taboos of Ruth's time that would have prevented a man of Boaz's position from taking advantage of Ruth, thereby destroying her reputation and perhaps endangering his own. Biblical writers were not squeamish. And this is interesting. Biblical writers were not squeamish about describing sexual encounters. I mean, you read about it all over the place, right? But the writer of Ruth has deliberately refrained from saying there was a liaison between Ruth and Boaz. If read carefully and with sensitivity, it becomes clear that he was saying just the opposite here. Both Ruth and Boaz acted, acted virtuously in a situation they knew could have turned out otherwise. Chastity was not an unknown virtue in the ancient world. I know we tend to think that, right? We tend to think that we're living in the most uh, heathen, sexually immoral times it's ever been. But you go back to the Old Testament, you can read about some pretty nasty times. In fact, you can go through world history and read about what the Romans were doing with children. All kinds of accounts of stuff like that. This is not anything new. We read that in Ecclesiastes, right? Everything that you can think of has been already been done under the sun, right? So these are not times when this was not going on. It could have very easily. But the account there is that Boaz had great character, and he loved Ruth, he, and he was so impressed by her kindness toward him that she did not go out after younger men, apparently here implying that Boaz was an older man. She did not seek out after the younger guys, as she could have probably. She's probably... Very beautiful woman, probably had that opportunity, could have easily garnered herself, you know, adorned herself and gone out and looked for some other guys, not younger than boys, but no. She sought out after him, with Naomi's help, of course. So for someone to say that about this situation, I think is very um, mistaken. I don't think there's any hint that anything was going on here. But the moral, really, of this chapter that I want you to see is we are struck here, or we, we really are struck here, by the noble character that's shown by Boaz. I mean, think about that. The guy, a woman comes to and, and uncovers your body, or your feet at least. I mean, he could have taken advantage of that situation very easily, right? But he didn't. 
He wanted things to be done appropriately, morally, according to God's will. We don't hear much about that today anymore, do we? Everything you see in TV, everything you hear about people you work with, their kids are all just shack up. You know, marriage is just, eh, we might get married one day. But we're going to live together for a few years, see if it works out. That's the way it is in the world these days. I have colleagues at work. Their children, I know them well. You know, live with their mates before they got married. These things just aren't normal anymore. It's the way of the world. In fact, for my children who knew that they couldn't do that until they were married, it's an anomaly. And they saw that. They can see that too, right? The world is dying. It's going to, you know where? (laughs) Hell in a handbasket, you might say, right? And as Christians, we have to remain with our character. What were you going to say? Steadfast. Steadfast, yes. I was trying to think of how you say integritous or whatever. I couldn't think of the word. The word integrity means what? When you use the word integrity, what are you saying, basically? That you're doing what's right, okay? But if you actually look at the word integrity, the term means doing what you say you're going to do. And that's a little bit different than the word character would be, right? It's very similar, but character is more about, I've always heard it phrased as character saying, someone has character doing the right thing when nobody's looking, right? And integrity is kind of the same thing. But character would say, I know what's right. I'm always going to do what's right no matter what. Integrity says, if I'm out preaching to people, I'm going to live the way I'm preaching. A little bit different, but very similar. Boaz is not necessarily preaching, but he knows the law. He knows if he takes advantage of Ruth in this situation, it's wrong. It's sinful. It's immoral. Therefore, because of his character, he's not going to do that. He's going to obey the Lord. And by the way, he says, and there's another guy closer to you. I can't do anything until he says no. Now, could Boaz have just avoided all that? Well, probably. He's a pretty prominent guy. He probably could have gone to someone and said, I'm marrying this woman, I don't want to hear it. And paid people off he had to. He was wealthy, right? But he doesn't. He follows the law. And as I mentioned before, Boaz and Ruth are in the genealogy of the Lord. How else would you consider him to be? Yeah, we have examples. King David, of course, had him had a mishap there with Bathsheba, right? And he's in the genealogy of the Lord. So these people aren't perfect. But in this case, we're showing the great integrity of Boaz. So much so that Naomi knows what he's going to do. No doubt. She knows exactly what Boaz is going to do because she knows his character. And you can imagine how that applies to us, right? Right? If we have great character 
if we are living according to the way we're preaching, if we have great integrity, then people are going to know that, right? And guess what? They're going to come to you when they need help because they know you're going to help them. They know because of your great character and integrity, you're going to come through for them. You're not going to ditch them and say, get out of here. Or do something wrong. I, don't, I know you're not perfect. Nobody here is saying you're perfect. But through your character, the character like Boaz has here, you make a great example for the Lord. I preached that many times in here. I know I'm preaching a little bit now. But that's the truth. And that's what I hope you get out of this lesson today. Integrity Boaz made it possible for Naomi to plan her risky proposition. But really and truly, Naomi was probably 99.99999% sure that Boaz was going to do what she thought he was going to do. The likelihood that he would respond otherwise was pretty much slim to none. So the benefit of having integrity is that people know how we will respond in any given situation. Would we have responded like Boaz did? Might say, yeah, now. Some of you older gentlemen, when you were younger, perhaps before you were married, would you have responded like Boaz there? Hmm. I don't know. Interesting question, isn't it? Something we should be considering perhaps more often than we do. You see, your character shows who you really are, right? Shows who inside you really are and who God sees you as, right? We can't see the heart. God can. Character comes from the heart. Integrity comes from the heart. So, if that's something that you've been struggling with, your character, your integrity, maybe you're putting some out in public, but back home when you're inside the house by yourself, something different's happening or going on, maybe you need to think about that. Maybe you need to think about making a change. I know, starting to preach, trying not to do that. But that's the moral here that we're talking about. Boaz is a great character. Naomi sees that she can trust him. And now Ruth is going to be blessed because of her noble choice to follow Naomi, but ultimately to follow God. All right, time is up. Thanks for being here. Oh, and by the way, next week we hear the rest of the story.